Hello, my name is Dave Emery, and this is side one of For the Record program number 444. This is an interview with author Peter Vogel on his research on Port Chicago. This is being recorded on February 1st of 2004. And for newer listeners who are not familiar with the research that's been done by our guest, uh, our guest is Peter Vogel, uh, the author of the online book, The Last Wave from Port Chicago, and uh, a diligent researcher who has uncovered a fascinating and very important piece of history, not only in the development of nuclear weapons, in particular the World War II development of atomic weapons, but also a very important piece of history of the African-American community, and February is Black History Month. It is my pleasure to present Peter Vogel. Peter, welcome back once again to our airwaves. Well, thanks very much, Dave. It's good to be back uh, with, uh, for the record, and be back with you. Well, uh, since you last visited with us a few years ago, you have condensed your research into an online book called The Last Wave from Port Chicago. Give us the web address, if you would, for your online book. It is at www.portchicago. Dot org. Port Chicago is one word, so it's www.portchicago.org. So uh, through the magic of the Internet, something that has come into its own, and really has, has emerged since we last visited, uh, people can now read at length and in detail about your research. Uh, Peter, let's get right into the subject of Port Chicago. And your odyssey in researching this historical event began with your discovery of a document entitled History of the 10,000-Ton Gadget at a rummage sale. Tell us about that, if you would. That's correct. Uh, in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I was living in 1980, uh, was interested in photography at that time, still am, and I went to a rummage sale at, uh, at the Christ Evangelical Lutheran Church there, and in the bottom of a box uh, that included photographic materials, I found uh, an envelope, a letter-sized envelope, that had this uh, piece of paper folded up in it, which I unfolded and looked at, and uh, recognized that it was a document that described an atomic bomb detonation and I figured immediately that it had probably been um, taken from Los Alamos, which is 30 miles northeast of Santa Fe. And I bought the uh, the document uh, from the rummage sale for 25 cents and uh, took it home and started looking at it and realized that I had a very significant document in my hands. And... Uh, was particularly uh, attracted to what the bottom line says, which is ball of fire mushroom out at 18,000 feet in typical Port Chicago fashion. I pretty much right away figured out that this document had been composed uh, prior to the uh, uh, 1945 Trinity site test of an atomic bomb in New Mexico because if the um, if a description of, of an atomic uh, a fireball was to be made there uh, after the Trinity site explosion, it would certainly have said ball of fire mushroom out at 18,000 feet in typical Trinity site fashion, it said Port Chicago, which I uh, really didn't know anything about at that time and had forgotten what I knew about it earlier, and began some, some research uh, into the uh, subject of the State Library and found no reference whatsoever to Port Chicago. And uh, then... Um, was working at that time with uh, a number of uh, physicists and other scientists who had been uh, at Los Alamos during World War II. And I showed this document around to them, and I said, well, what, is the, what does the bottom line here mean, ball of fire mushroom out at 18,000 feet in typical Port Chicago fashion? And they all said that they had never heard of Port Chicago, uh, didn't have any idea what it meant, but they all agreed that Edward Teller, 
the supposed father of the of the, uh, of the H bomb uh, would know what Port Chicago was. So I had had studied physics with uh, Dr. Teller at Berkeley in the mid '60s and had known him pretty well in the context of our studies. So I set up an appointment in August of 1980 to meet with him uh, in his office at Los Alamos and. Uh, there, uh, when we did meet, I pulled this thing out and uh, put it into his hands, this document, and uh, asked him to uh, look at it while I took some pictures of him. Uh, he started reading the document, and I, I took some very interesting pictures of him reading this historical document, one of which is, is posted on the, on the website with the book. And then I said, what's the bottom line mean, Ed, where it says ball of fire mushroom out at 18,000 feet in typical Port Chicago fashion? And he just kind of went a little bit ballistic at that point and immediately said that uh, he would deny he had ever seen this document and would deny that he had ever spoken with me about Port Chicago. Uh, then he said, I probably had a classified document and I should take it immediately over to the classification office at the laboratory there where we were at Los Alamos. So was he mushroomed out in typical Port Chicago fashion? And he, uh, Ed, Edward Teller, just said, well, you know, he would never, he would never acknowledge having seen the document and would never acknowledge having discussed Port Chicago, but uh, I had good photographs of him reading the document. So eventually, uh, that is to say, a couple weeks later, the classification office at Los Alamos told me to look up uh, Port Chicago under disasters in uh, the Americana Encyclopedia, and I first learned there about the, uh, about the explosion of Port Chicago. Now, this, this document, which is reproduced in a couple places uh, in the book on the web, uh, is available for everyone to see. There, over the, in the beginning especially, uh, Dave, there were people who, who thought perhaps I had um, forged this document and that it was not authentic. Uh, can you tell us about the authorship of the document as you've been able to determine it? Well, yes. Um, when I published my first article on Port Chicago in 1982, I attributed authorship uh, to Joseph O. Hirschfelder, the mathematician, and, and uh, with the assistance of William George Penny, a, a British physicist who was at Los Alamos at that time. And I really didn't have any way to prove it, but it sure looked like it. Um, finally, the, uh, the Department of Energy publication, a book published in 1991, Critical Assembly, authenticated uh, the fact that Hirschfelder and Penny had written this document. So that, that established the authorship. Um, Hirschfelder, was a ma was, who died in uh, 1991, was a, a mathematician and a chemist at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And George Penny was a British physicist who's actually known as the, the Oppenheimer of Britain and was responsible for developing and testing the first British atomic bomb. But there were still people who doubted the authenticity of the document, and I'm happy to say now that nine months ago, uh, two things happened, which are not up on the web yet, but I'd like you to be the first to know about. Okay. Um, nine months ago, um, an individual at the Department of Energy who prefers to remain anonymous sent me a copy of the cover letter that accompanied distribution of the document, History of 10,000-Ton Gadget, accompanied distribution of that document at Los Alamos in 1945. Uh, that document is also uh, signed by Joseph Hirschfelder, uh, which again authenticates that he wrote the document. Now, 
DOE sent me that document after I had posted the chapter on the web um, that um, gives a critical explanation and analysis of that document in Chapter 6. And I had quite a bit of difficulty with that over the years because there's a lot of scientific notation in there that was difficult for me to understand. And I finally got it figured out, and I posted all of that on the web and got it all right, and then DOE sent me this cover letter that explains all the scientific notation that occurs in the document and basically just shows that I finally I got it uh, all correctly. So then the other thing that happened nine months ago, um, BBC Channel 5 was doing a film documentary on, on the work I'd done on Port Chicago, and then they, the commissioners at BBC in London decided not to do it because uh, all I had was this copy of the document. Uh, and two months after that, uh, the National Nuclear Security Administration in Albuquerque sent me a letter that acknowledged that, indeed, the document history of 10,000-ton gadget had been stolen from Los Alamos and that I indeed had recovered it at a rumored sale and that I had returned the document to the archives at Los Alamos and so on and so forth. So that's, the document is finally completely authenticated by the National Nuclear Security Administration and the Department of Energy. Well, good. That, that is uh, that's, uh, something of a, of, a, of a holy grail attained, I think, under the circumstances. And and given the uh, the controversial nature of the research itself, uh, Peter, you broached to Dr. Uh, Donald M. Kerr, who was the director of the Los Alamos National Laboratory, about the paper. How did he react? Well, he he was um, so I put this uh, unnerved. Um, I was preparing to begin a period of three years of work with him, a period that turned out to be three years, and. Um, uh, before we began our work together, uh, I met with him in his office at Los Alamos, and I put a copy of this uh, document into his hands, and I said um, that I was reasonably confident. This was in autumn 1980, so I'd had the entire summer and autumn of, of uh, the year 1980 to study this document. And I told Dr. Kerr at that time, I said, I'm reasonably confident that the cause of the Port Chicago explosion was an unannounced test of a low-yield experimental fission device that was conducted jointly by the Navy, United States Navy, and Los Alamos. And he first said that he would, uh, he reached for his telephone, and he said, I'll, I'll get Ed Teller on the phone, and he'll dispel that notion. And I said, well, don't bother, because I've already spoken with him, and of course photographed him in August. So then he turned back to me, and he said, you'll never be able to prove it. And I said, well, I'm certainly going to do the best that I can, and I intend to make it a public issue. And um, then, as I say, you know, we worked three years together and, and um, you know, got along quite well all during that time. After our time together, Dr. Kerr stayed at Los Alamos, I think, for a year or perhaps two, and then he went into private industry. Um, at the time, I was finishing up the book two years ago, and I knew that uh, it was going to be completed, and I was confident that I had all the evidence that was necessary. I, I called him uh, where he was working then uh, at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. He was then the assistant director of the FBI and director of the FBI uh, laboratory division, which is the forensic laboratory of the FBI. 
I told uh, told Dr. Kerr at that time that the book was coming, and we then exchanged some written correspondence, postal correspondence, in which uh, I briefly described the work, the Mark II, and the um, the manifestation of the fireball, and um, said that I believed uh, that the legal issues involved were two. Um, that the Congressional Declaration of War against the Empire of Japan, uh, the declaration of war that it put us into World War II, um, comprehended the legitimacy of a test at Port Chicago, and that probably the test at Port Chicago of the Mark II was legal. And the other thing I questioned was whether or not there had been a uh, what I called a concerted effort by government officials to uh, withhold information about the Port Chicago explosion from this investigator. Well, now, Dr. Kerr, since, and it's been about two years now, um, he's now the deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, deputy director there at the CIA for Science and Technology. I haven't spoken to him in, in the last two years, uh, but uh, my the indications I have are that, uh, that he's completely aware that the book has been published and uh, has uh, become familiar with the contents. Uh, Peter, now, of course, one of the things, let's get into the subject of the actual physical characteristics of the explosion. Officially, this explosion took place on July 17, 1944, and officially it was the explosion of hundreds of tons of TNT and Torpex that were being loaded onto an ammunition ship, the EA, or had been loaded onto an ammunition ship, the EA Bryan, which was anchored at the Port Chicago Munitions uh, Depot in Sassoon Bay in the San Francisco Bay Area. Hundreds of black sailors died. You know what was the, the precise death total in the uh, in the Port Chicago explosion? Three hundred and twenty men were killed in the explosion, of which two hundred and twenty or two three two hundred and two, I believe, were African American uh, enlisted men of the United States Navy. The um, the E. A. Bryan was a, a Liberty ship um, moored to the pier, the shiploading pier at Port Chicago, and had taken on. Um, uh, charge of 1,570 tons TNT and Torpex, which was contained in 5 million pounds of uh, wartime munitions. And uh, now the explosion itself uh, was attributed to the detonation of these conventional munitions. In the course of your research, uh, you have tackled the physical aspects of the actual explosion at Port Chicago, and there are a number of different uh, aspects of the physical explosion that, uh, according to your research, preclude the possibility that it could have been the conventional explosion that it was. I wonder if you would detail those factors for us. Sure. be glad to, uh, Dave. The first and most important artifact is the ball of fire. And we know from the document history of 10,000-ton gadget that that Joseph Hirschfelder, a scientist at Los Alamos, characterized the Port Chicago fireball to have been typical of a nuclear fireball, a ball of fire mushroom out at 18,000 feet in typical Port Chicago fashion. So it was that statement first um, that got my attention. And so a great deal of my um, investigation of the manifestations of the explosion uh, was concerned with the fireball, which, because of the extremely high temperature of a nuclear fission explosion, is is quite different than the kind of amorphous mass of hot gases that uh, is generated by a a chemical explosion, for example, TNT or or Torpex. 
So um, I started with that and uh, then began to look at all the, the manifestations of the explosion. Now, this, this weapon, which was tested at Port Chicago on the 17th of July, 1944, was, uh, was a very low-yield uh, fission device. We'll talk about that in a while. For the moment, we'll refer to it as the Mark II, so Roman number two. Now, basically what happened was the Mark II, a very low-yield fission weapon of about 200 to 300 tons TNT equivalent, was detonated first, and that precipitated the detonation of these 1,570 tons of TNT and Torpex in the, the munitions. And it was within the larger explosion that the fireball emerges, typically, from the Port Chicago uh, explosion. And that is characteristic of a nuclear explosion, but not a conventional explosion. Uh, that's absolutely correct. And there are certain um, physical manifestations of the fireball that can be, can be recognized. For example, because of the heat, the extreme heat, you know, a million degrees, uh, Celsius, the rate of ascent, the, the whoosh, the way this fireball goes up, and the rate of ascent uh, that, that it experiences as it begins and reaches the top of its rise is very, very much faster than anything that, that uh, the temperature of a chemical TNT explosion can produce. And it will also rise to a much greater height. Uh, and that's also uh, true of the succeeding flame from this. All right, so we have the fireball, uh, which Los Alamos has already described as being typical of a nuclear explosion. Mm -hmm. um, and that really was the, was the most definitive um, artifact of the Port Chicago explosion. A couple of points that uh, I'd like you to develop for us too uh, briefly because we have a lot of other information sure. to cover. But the uh, eyewitnesses who described a brilliant white flash which illuminated the area to the uh, the, the quality of, of noonday light uh, distinguished that from uh, or explained the white flash and what makes that distinctive. And also uh, a pilot noted what appeared to be a smoke ring around the explosion. I wonder if you tell us about uh, what a Wilson condensation cloud is and in combination with the white flash, the significance of those two pieces of physical evidence. Sure. Now, um, a nuclear explosion is very, very hot, um, million degrees. And when you have a temperature that hot from an explosion in the atmosphere, it heats the atmosphere uh, to a luminescence, which is, is not achieved by any other source. And in that moment of, of luminance, when the, when the atmosphere is just brilliantly hot, it generates what, what we perceive as a white flash of light. And that occurred at Port Chicago. And the white flash, the, the initial flash of light from the Port Chicago explosion illuminated the, the, the city of Napa, which is, I believe, 30 miles away, as if in noonday, um, an intensely white, white uh, flash. Now, part of that, and I think it's interesting to note that Los Alamos, the way they planned this in the Navy, you know, is very carefully done. There was a considerable amount of torpex uh, on the pier, and torpex munitions that were included in, the, in the, the load aboard the ship, the E.A. Bryan. Now, torpex, when it explodes, because it has aluminum in it, will also create a white flash. And it was just one, one more way that Los Alamos and the Navy was able to conceal 
the uh, artifact of uh, this characteristic artifact of a nuclear explosion in Fort Chicago. Now the the condensation cloud. Um, when there is a large explosion, uh, a pressure wave uh, radiates uh, from the center of the explosion, and it um, it compresses um, it compresses the atmosphere. And when that happens, and and the pressure goes up, the water uh, vapor that's in the atmosphere is condensed to water, so it becomes actually a visible water vapor, like a cloud, like a uh, like a fog. And that was clearly observed by two airline pilots who were flying line of sight uh, toward Port Chicago at the time of the explosion. They described this uh, enormous smoke ring that uh, was produced by the Port Chicago explosion. And that is characteristic of the Wilson condensation cloud, is characteristic of nuclear explosions that occur on or over water. That's that's true. There's some evidence, however, that... um, a Wilson condensation cloud in the same circumstances can be produced by a very large uh, TNT detonation, but the the diameter of the Wilson condensation cloud that is produced by conventional explosions will be very, very much smaller than the diameter of a Wilson condensation cloud in the same conditions that's produced by an atomic bomb because of the heat and pressure. All right, Peter, we've got about five more minutes on this side of the interview. Uh, what are some of the other aspects of the physical evidence uh, of the Port Chicago explosion that, in your opinion, refute the conventional explanation, namely that it was the detonation of uh, standard munitions? Well, actually, the, the only things that are really distinctive are the fireball, uh, the rate of ascent of the fireball, the height which it achieved, uh, and uh, to a certain extent the Wilson condensation cloud. That's what made this thing so remarkable, so indistinguishable from the background of a chemical explosion. You know, it's just beautifully done. You know, in the final analysis, discounting all the documentary evidence that we're going to get into a little bit later, the fireball and the manifestation of the fireball is almost uniquely the physical manifestation upon which the determination of the detonation of the atomic bomb rests. Uh, now, one of the, the obstacles that you ran into during the course of your investigation was the official explanation that there simply was not enough U-235 available for a test in 1944. I wonder if you could uh, briefly, on, on this side, encapsulate for us your search through the documentation about the U-235. Um, These uh, physicists that I worked with, who were former Manhattan Project scientists, were insistent at the very beginning that I had to be able to prove that it had been sufficient U-235 produced by the time of the Port Chicago explosion to enable a nuclear weapon test. The literature universally says there was no 235 produced during 1943 or 1944. The first thing I did in December of 1980 was I found out who in the Department of Energy, two offices in the DOE, who would have that information. product data for 44 and 43, and on uh, December 9th, I called these people up, or December 5th, and I said, I'm working for the state of New Mexico, I need to have this data for the years 1943 through 49, and these two offices both gave me the, the classified data for the production of 235 for the years 1943 through 1949. That didn't satisfy everyone, um, so I had to keep working on that. And, you know, I knew who had done this. Philip Abelson, working at the Naval Research Laboratory, was the one who actually produced the material that was necessary. 
I kept talking to him for years, and he wouldn't tell me, he wouldn't tell me. Finally, um, Philip Abelson is the uh, editor emeritus of Science Magazine, American Association for the Advancement of Science. One of the editors there persuaded him to write a memoir, uh, which was published by the um, na uh, National Academy Press in 1991, in which he acknowledges that there was production, U-235 production, during 1943 and 1944. And then finally, the capper to that was a letter I found dated September 15, 1943, to Admiral Purnell of the Atomic Bomb Military Policy Committee from James Conan, in which um, James Conan informs Admiral Purnell that there's still um, 160 pounds of uranium hexafluoride enriched uh, at the Naval Research Laboratory, and that that is to be transferred to the Manhattan Project. And that was all produced during 1943. So that now is is proven and established beyond doubt. There was more than sufficient uh, material to detonate the Mark II at Port Chicago in July 44. And we'll get into uh, what the Mark II was inside two of the broadcast. Uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left on this side, Peter. Uh, one of the things that uh, you came across was that there was a tremendous amount of interest on the part of Los Alamos National Laboratory in this supposedly conventional explosion. Uh, tell us about Captain William Parsons and uh, some of the things he was involved in and uh, his role in uh, writing up Port Chicago for Los Alamos. Captain William Sterling Parsons um was assigned duty at Los Alamos in uh, spring 1943 on the recommendation of uh, Admiral Purnell and uh, James Conant. And he, he was an ordnance expert, uh, the Navy's leading expert in naval gun manufacture and the operation of, of naval guns, uh, a, a genius in that area. He was brought in to design what turned out to be the Hiroshima weapon, a gun assembly weapon. Um, and he also designed, participated in the design of this Mark II, the weapon tested at Port Chicago that we're going to discuss. Um, therefore, um, immediately after the Port Chicago explosion, uh, Captain uh, Parsons and two Los Alamos scientists went to Port Chicago and began making intensive studies uh, of the explosion and the effects of the explosion. And these were all reported to Admiral Purnell of the Atomic Bomb Military Policy Committee in memoranda that... Uh, the first one on uh, July 27, 1944, and they go, uh, these memoranda uh, continue through the end of um, October 1944. About 700 pages of documents that Captain Parsons and his two assistants uh, prepared on the explosion. Uh, real quickly, because we're almost out of time, uh, William Parsons has figured uh, prominently in the development of atomic weapons, both with regard to the Hiroshima explosion and also Operation Crossroads. Encapsulate for us uh, th those points of information in our last one minute, if you would, Peter. Captain Parsons was uh, the bomb commander on the Hiroshima flight, um, and he armed this weapon in flight. It was a weapon that he had designed. Uh, after the war, uh, for the um, for the bikini tests, he was the technical director for uh, the bikini tests, uh, and uh, he um, he also um, uh, died um, immediately after um, after um, 
Dr. Oppenheimer lost his security clearance, which raises some questions. We'll talk about that, time permitting, later on in the broadcast. Do note that this very significant individual with regard to the early history of atomic weapons and the testing of same was in charge, uh, was overseeing the tremendous amount of research and interest on the part of Los Alamos into Port Chicago. We've been visiting with Peter Vogel, the author of the online book, The Last Wave from Port Chicago, available online at www.portchicago.org. For the record, shows are being archived by WFMU on Real Audio. More recent programs are streaming at www.wfmu.org front slash Dave Emery, one word. Older shows at a longer URL linked to both the wfmu.org front slash Dave Emery website and to the Real Audio equipped for the record section of the Spitfire website as well. There will be a detailed annotated description of For the Record Program 444, as there are for the other For the Record programs within a week or so of the airing of the program. Listeners who are interested in supporting the work that I'm doing will find a, a portion to click on in the written description of each For the Record program. This concludes Side 1 of For the Record Program 444, an interview with author Peter Vogel. But this is being recorded on February 1st of the year 2004. My name is Dave Emery, and for Peter Vogel, thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Dave Emery, and this is side two of For the Record program number 444, an interview with Peter Vogel, the author of The Last Wave from Port Chicago, an online book available at www.portchicagooneword.org. Peter, welcome back once again to our airwaves. Oh, thanks very much. That's uh, it's such a pleasure to be with you always. And uh, we, by the way, are recording this on February 1st of the year 2004, the 60th anniversary, the year of the 60th anniversary of the Port Chicago explosion. Now, uh, briefly, Peter, inside one, we were talking about your odyssey, having discovered a paper in 1980 at a rummage sale that described what appeared to be the detonation of a nuclear weapon and that the mushroom cloud mushroomed out at 18,000 feet in typical Port Chicago fashion. Uh, after receiving discouraging words from a number of different people, including Edward Teller, uh, with whom you had worked in the 1960s, and being admonished that you had a classified document, you began a, a line of research that determined that, in fact, uh, the detonation of the ammunition ship E.A. Bryan on July 17th of 1944 at the Port Chicago Naval Munitions Depot in Sassoon Bay in the San Francisco Bay was actually the detonation of a nuclear explosion. Another point that we made was that uh, there was a great deal of interest in the Port Chicago explosion by the Los Alamos National Laboratory, which was uh, unusual because this was supposedly the detonation of uh, some conventional explosives. We talked about some of the physical characteristics of the explosion and why the uh, explosion has to have been the detonation of a nuclear weapon due to the very different amounts of heat and the physical characteristics of the explosion. And we concluded our uh, discussion on side one with uh, a synopsis of Captain William Parsons, who oversaw the write-up of the Port Chicago explosion from Los Alamos Laboratory, uh, for Los Alamos Laboratory, I should say, and later became a key figure in the early testing and development of atomic weapons, having been the bombing officer on board the Enola Gay that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, and later having overseen the Operation Crossroads tests around the Bikini Atoll. One of the things that you mentioned in passing, Peter, was you made a reference to the Port Chicago device as a Mark II. I wonder if you could develop that for us. What was the Mark II? And also, in, in passing, I mentioned what the Marks I and III would have been. Oh, 
Oh, sure. Uh, that'd be good, Dave. The Mark II was a real tongue twister, and I'll give it to you real fast here. Um, although you've actually, in earlier broadcasts, we've talked a little bit about this and the preliminary information that I then had. The Mark II was the autocatalytic uranium hydride lateral implosion experimental device uh, known um, as the Mark II. That's a Roman II after the word Mark, M-A-R-K. Actually, the the Mark II, this uh, uranium hydride weapon, was actually first proposed by Robert Oppenheimer in a letter to the physicist uh, George Uhlenbeck, dated February 5, 1939. And in that letter to Uhlenbeck, he says, I think it really not too improbable that a 10-centimeter cube of uranium deuteride, which is deuterium, uh, and then parenthetically he says we should have something to slow the neutrons without capturing them. A 10-centimeter cube of uranium deuteride might well, very well blow itself to hell. Now, that was in February of uh, 1939. And the next uh, reference that we have to uh, the Mark II was made in a report that the uh, military uh, policy committee uh, sent to Vice President Wallace, Secretary of War uh, Stimson, and General Marshall, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, now, that letter uh, is dated uh, 21 August uh, 1943, and Vice President Wa uh, Wallace and Secretary of War Stimson and uh, General Marshall are advised in that letter that if a weapon based on uranium hydride can be successfully developed, that the first weapon can be available in the uh, autumn of 1944. Now, remembering that uh, the Port Chicago explosion was in July of uh, 1944. So the uh, Vice President uh, Wallace uh, and the Military Policy Committee expected that the first bomb could be available uh, in the autumn of 1944 if this hydride uh, bomb, which later became known as the Mark II, could be successfully developed. Now, the, the description, the, the most adequate description we have of the Mark II uh, appears in a memorandum, a uh, seven-page memorandum from James Conant, uh, a member of the Military uh, Policy Committee and then Harvard University president. Uh, this memorandum of uh, entitled Findings of Trip to Los Alamos, July 4, 1944, uh, he tells General Groves, he describes the Mark II, and uh, says that it's going to require uh, either uh, 9 kilograms of uranium-235 isotope or 3 kilograms of plutonium, and that it will produce an energy yield equivalent to the detonation of 1,000 tons of TNT. Now, then, uh, that was on the 4th of July, 1944. On the day of the Port Chicago explosion, the 17th July, 1944, uh, James Conant is meeting at the University of Chicago with uh, Robert Oppenheimer from Los Alamos. And in that conversation, which Conant recorded uh, in his historical notes four days later, uh, he, he reports that he told Oppenheimer that the Mark II uh, should be tested as soon as possible, and if the test is successful, Mark II could be put on the shelf and uh, work on the uh, bombs of greater energy yield could proceed with greater confidence, uh, which means that the theory of large-scale nuclear weapons would have been proven by the test of the Mark II if it were successful. Now, again, this time, uh, the timing of this memorandum is July 4th of 1944, which was a little less than two weeks before the actual explosion. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And it discusses the weapon and suggests that it be proof-fired and that if, uh, in fact, the firing went successfully, that the weapon could then be put on the shelf. Indeed. On 4 July 1944, Oppenheimer, or uh, James Conan informs General Groves that a test of the Mark II is imperative. Uh, that it must be a test of the Mark II must be made, and if it is successful, then it can be put on the shelf. Uh, and then on the 17th of July, actually the day of the explosion that afternoon in Chicago, Oppenheimer told, uh, or Conant told Oppenheimer specifically, let's test this thing as soon as possible and put it on the shelf if it works. And by the way, these uh, these documents are included in the discussion in Chapter 13 of your book. Yes, and they're all reproduced there. So, so again, because this is a highly technical discussion on July fourth of forty-four, a little bit, a little before two, a little uh, less than two weeks before the uh, explosion, uh, there was a projection of proof firing of the Mark II, and that this established a provisional intention to test the weapon, uh, which could then be put on the shelf for development in, within three to four months if other weapons uh, proved to be unsuccessfully developed. Yes, that's that's correct, Dave. And uh, another memorandum from the very same day, from actually July 17th of 44, urged that the weapon be tested as soon as possible. Yes, indeed. Indeed so. And Oppenheimer agreed to test the weapon as soon as possible, and that was actually just uh, several hours before the weapon was in fact tested at Port Chicago. Oppenheimer said, uh, told Conn at that time, it was a little too early. Um, yeah, but clearly he was anticipating the test that was conducted uh, at Port Chicago several hours later. Another of the documents that is reproduced in Chapter 13 is a report to General Groves about, on a visit to Los Alamos on August 17th of 1944, which was exactly one month later. Uh, I wonder if you tell us about that report and the significance of what was contained in it for our investigation. Well, that actually is a very interesting uh, report, um, and uh, uh, consisting of two pages, and, and it was entitled "Report to uh, General Groves on Visit to Los Alamos on August 17, 1944," and is signed by James Conan. Now, the top page, uh, all except two sentences, are covered up uh, by the uh, classification people. So, what we can read on that front page. Uh, these two sentences, it is agreed that Mark II should be put on the shelf for the present, and if all other implosion methods fail, it could be taken off the shelf and developed for combat use in three or four months' time. Now, if we remember that on 21 August 1943, um, a little bit uh, more than a year earlier, uh, the Military Policy Committee had told Vice President Wallace and the Joint Chiefs of Staff that the first hydride bomb could be available in the autumn of 1944. So what Conan is saying here, this weapon could be developed in three or four months' time, actually perfectly fulfills the prediction that the first weapon would be available in the autumn of 1944. And uh, this basically, uh, in your opinion, sort of it documents that, in fact, the weapon had been tested and found to be successful. Well, yes, this document, the report on the visit to Los Alamos on August 17, actually in, quite covertly refers to the Port Chicago explosion. In the latter, the second page of this uh, note uh, on explosive damage, uh, Conant told Groves it was agreed that Class B damage was damage beyond repair and the type of structure must be named, and it was agreed for dwelling houses that the area of Class B damage was about 1,000 1, tons, was about... Uh, uh, 0.5 mile radius. 
Now, we can know because the radius of Class B damage at the Port Chicago explosion was one-half mile. We know, therefore, that Conan is here referring to the Port Chicago explosion and that the successful proof of the Mark II, which allowed the decision to put it on the shelf, was made specifically in consequence of the Port Chicago explosion. So it's specifically in its decision to put the Mark II on the shelf and uh, for... A provision of a conditional redevelopment uh, within three or four months' time. The specific reference was to the damage caused by Port Chicago as um, evidentiary uh, proof of the successful uh, use of the weapon. Exactly. And, and this is the document, as I recall earlier, that all but two or three sentences had been redacted in the original, uh, the original disclosure of the document. That's, that's correct. Um, the first page only has these two sentences that says it's agreed that Mark II should be put on a shelf for the present. But it does there discuss somewhat uh, the Mark I uh, and the Mark III and the Mark IV weapons, which I, I could uh, identify for you if you like. Okay, if you would. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mark I weapon was the gun assembly weapon that was uh, used in combat at Hiroshima, uh, Japan, um, uh, what was it, the 6th of, uh, 6th of August, 1945. Mm-hmm. It had a yield of approximately 22,000 tons TNT equivalent and used the uranium-235 uh, isotope as an efficient material. Now, Mark II was this actually a, la- a cylindrical implosion weapon, kind of like a pipe. It was basically a nuclear pipe bomb. Now, the Mark III was a spherical design, different from Mark II, which was was uh, cylindrical, Mark III was spherical, uh, but it did not use focused lenses to to direct the explosion inward towards the core. Uh, that was a weapon that was never really developed nor tested because the Mark II had been proven and the Mark IV, the next evolution, Mark IV was the weapon that was tested at Trinity Site in New Mexico and was then subsequently uh, detonated at, at Nagasaki on, on 9 August 1945. And that used uh, plutonium and uh, was about 21,000 tons TNT equivalent. Uh, one of the things that you write about in uh, your online book, Peter, is the fact that uh, the uh, combined explosive power of the two to three hundred uh, equivalent uh, hundred tons of TNT equivalent of the Mark II plus the conventional ordnance uh, basically anticipated or approximated what was viewed as the optimal exp- uh, aerial burst of a Mark II. Develop that briefly for us, if you would. Well, uh, in this um, this memorandum, findings of trip to Los Alamos, um, July 4, 1944, that James Conant wrote to uh, to General Groves, uh, he says the present indications are that the Mark II bomb, Perrin's Class B damage, two to five, five two to five square miles, will be ready uh, before July 1. Now. The Mark II is further down in this memorandum is defined as having a nominal yield of 1,000 tons TNT equivalent. At Port Chicago, it was only 200, 200 to 300 tons. But given the entire explosion, including the Mark II and the munitions that went up at Port Chicago, um, you had an explosion of about um, about 15 to 1,700 tons TNT equivalent. Um, and it caused damage, B damage, to a radius of one half mile, which is different from what James Conant predicts that Mark II uh, will have class B damage of two to five square miles. Now, all we have to do, well, it's not easy, but all 
I had to do was do the math to work that out, uh, Dave, mm. and to figure out that a 1,000 uh, TNT tons uh, equivalent uh, bomb detonated at the optimal altitude will cause bee damage in an area of two to five square miles. But at Port Chicago detonated at the surface, the same bomb would only have uh, generated what happened at Port Chicago, which was a class B radius of uh, one half mile. Yeah, by the way, one, one point I want to mention just in passing, because uh, we've, we've looked at Captain Parsons. Uh, initially, uh, the uh, naval delivery or shipboard delivery of nuclear weapons or atomic weapons was seen as a, a probable way of introducing the weapons into enemy territory. So a lot of the early work was done under the auspices of the Navy. Uh, Peter, one of the things that uh, you noted in your book is that uh, shortly after Port Chicago, the nature of the work at Los Alamos shifted in a very significant way towards developing explosive lenses. I wonder if you would uh, develop the significance of that for us, both in terms of uh, the latter development of nuclear weapons and also what that seems to imply about Port Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, proof um, uh, that was conducted in the Mark II at the Port Chicago Naval Magazine uh, in July 1944, 17 July 1944, proved the theory of large-scale nuclear fission weapons. And because the Mark II was an implosion device, a primitive implosion device uh, in the form of a cylinder, um, it also proved that implosion uh, was a feasible method of detonating uh, an atomic bomb. So at uh, Los Alamos, on the 1st of August, Oppenheimer radically reorganized the programs at Los Alamos to begin intensive effort to develop the spherical uh, focused uh, design of the Mark IV uh, Nagasaki Trinity site bomb. And uh, so this, again, would seem to indicate that Port Chicago was something of uh, a turning point in terms of the uh, early development of atomic weapons. Indeed it was. I mean, as I, to be redundant, repetitive here, uh, the, the test of the Mark II of Port Chicago proved the theory of large-scale nuclear fission weapons, but at the same time it also proved the theory uh, that implosion could be used as the means of detonating a, a nuclear fission weapon. Alrighty, and uh, this uh, this was one of the one of the uh, elements in the title, the formal title of this very long uh, scientific and technical title of the weapon was an implosion device. Yes, yes, that's correct. Uh, tell us uh, a couple of points. Uh, develop a couple of points for us quickly, Peter, if you would. What is the, you make reference in uh, your book to the S one Executive Committee? What was that, and uh, what did they have to say about germ- the state of German atomic research at this time? Bearing in mind this is uh, nineteen forty three forty four. The S one Executive Committee uh, represented the S one Committee as a whole, which I, don't, I think there were fifteen people or 10 or 15 people on it. Um, Lyman J. Uh, Briggs was the chairman, and there were um, E.V. Murphy and, and Harold Urey actually, were uh, other members of the executive committee. And uh, they wrote a letter January 23, 1943, um, which expressed the committee's anxiety that Germany would be able to develop uh, an atomic bomb as quickly as the United States was going to be able to do it. Uh, if um, Germany had prosecuted their uh, development of the separation of U-235 technologies as the United States had, and 
these men in January 23, 1943, predicted uh, that um, Germany's U-235 production um, facilities could come online by January 1st, 1944. And uh, then they predict that uh, if Germany had prosecuted their development of the separation technologies for the uranium isotopes, Germany might become, uh, might have an effective weapon during the first half of 1944, uh, which, of course, the United States did. And uh, this uh, line of speculation uh, involved the use of a uranium hydride weapon, which, which is what port, uh, what, what the Mark II was. Indeed so. Uh, one of the things that uh, you have in your book, Peter, that was new, or at least I was not aware of since our last uh, visit, and that is that uh, Soviet espionage in the United States into, its, uh, into America's uh, atomic research program had apparently disclosed some uh, uh, information about the development of the uranium hydride weapon, or, or the Mark II, as it was formally called. Uh, tell us about that, and tell us about uh, Mr. Igor Kurchatov. Who was he, and what did he have to say about the, uh, spec- about, about the progress of U.S. atomic research? Igor Kurchatov, um, yeah, he was uh, the head of the, uh, the Russian intelligence services, and he, um, he was charged with the review of all... Um, espionage received by Russia that uh, would pertain to the development of the atomic bomb, which was anticipated uh, in Russia to, to be um, in the future. And by May 15, I believe the date was, Kurchatov uh, had come into possession of documents that had somehow gotten uh, to him, which indicated to him that um, by May of 1945, the United States had already separated enough uranium to detonate an atomic bomb and had um, uh, begun development of the uranium hydride Mark II weapon. Uh, and he speculates uh, in May 1945 that uh, there was some possibility that the United States had already tested this weapon, as he says, based on information in the documents that he had received. Now, uh, didn't Kurchatov was reporting to Laurenti Beria, wasn't he still at this oh, point? Oh, yes, that's, that's correct. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was uh, sort of a, the, the Soviet nuclear specialist uh, in terms of their espionage program, uh, indicating that apparently the Soviet espionage had become aware uh, not only of America's uh, atomic weapons development, but of the probability that uh, a uranium hydride weapon had already been tested. Uh, Peter, just, this is speculative. Uh, I'm just wondering, in light of the fact that uh, Port Chicago was a very important event in terms of African-American history, uh, there was a large-scale mutiny trial of African-American uh, sailors who would refuse to continue work uh, at the Port Chicago facility because of this. Uh, that became something of uh, a landmark in the development of uh, African-American legal rights in this country. And also, in light of the fact that Soviet intelligence had apparently developed some awareness of this. Uh, do you think, and you know, just give me your, give me your uh, opinion on this, do you think that uh, the Port Chicago explosion might have been an element of leverage in the whole issue uh, of, of the, uh, the McCarthy period and also the, uh, the very real issue of, of Soviet espionage into the U.S. program? I'm wondering about how Robert Oppenheimer uh, eventually lost his uh, security clearance. And Do you think that Port Chicago was, was perhaps seen as something of a potential propaganda football because of the apparent Soviet awareness of this and, and obviously the 
status quo of the event as a, as a, an historical and legal uh, element vis-a-vis uh, African-American relations in this country? Well, first, um, I want to call, uh, call attention to the information in the book uh, that uh, I have put out there that calls uh, for the um, Judge Advocate General of the United States Navy to immediately vacate all the Port Chicago uh, mutiny convictions uh, and also the summary courts martial convictions because um, uh, because the uh, men had been deprived uh, procedural due process by corruption of the uh, court of inquiry proceedings in which Captain Parsons' brother-in-law had been appointed by uh, Admiral Purnell and. The Navy knew what had happened at Port Chicago and failed to disclose it to the men who had been uh, charged. And uh, and with that, uh, with that absent uh, that information, they were denied uh, due process, and all those charges should be vacated. Now, as far as Oppenheimer uh, is concerned, um, I I somewhat feel that since Oppenheimer, uh, we have papers that demonstrate that Oppenheimer was completely aware of the Port Chicago explosion and had participated in analyses of that explosion. Uh, and we know that uh, he wasn't uh, really of the military mind and uh, that he may have had difficulty justifying the uh, explosion which killed 300 men, most of them African Americans. Uh, I think that would have... Uh, not been an easy thing for Oppenheimer to accept, uh, even during wartime, and after the war, probably even more difficult for him to accept. And it may be uh, that we'll discover, as all of this starts to unravel, that one of the reasons that Oppenheimer had his security clearance uh, revoked was because uh, there was anxiety among the military that Oppenheimer was going to spill the beans about what happened at Port Chicago. That, that's what I was wondering, and, and the fact that, that Soviet intelligence had obviously uh, developed at least some awareness that Port Chicago had taken place uh, suggests, and because obviously you, you have been through a long uh, odyssey vis-a-vis Port Chicago, and, and uh, you are to be uh, commended for having endured what you've endured in order to bring this subject to light. Uh, and one can imagine that, that one of the most sensitive aspects of this would have been the potential uh, propaganda value of disclosure, particularly during the Cold War period. So it's one of the things that I found fascinating about, about your most recent research, that apparently there had been some, some Soviet uh, espionage awareness uh, about this, uh, this event. It's really... Um I have thought and thought and thought and looked at all the information I have trying to figure out who uh, in the uh, American and the, the Canadian or the British establishment the, who knew that this weapon had been developed, the uranium hydride weapon, knew it had been developed and would be developed and had been developed and had been tested. Who could possibly have passed that information on uh, to the Russians? And it's just there's no significant clue that I can latch on to. Uh, Peter, uh, we've only got a minute or two left here. Uh, one of the things that uh, critics have mentioned uh, in connection with Port Chicago, and we've done a number of uh, interviews in the past, and that is the issue of residual radiation. Uh, naysayers have said, well, there would have been radiation if, in fact, there had been a nuclear explosion. How would you address that? Well, all right, that, that's good. Uh, that's Usually the first question that comes up, because uh, anyone, uh, even the, the, least, um, the least informed, uh, know that atomic bombs put off radiation. And I had to answer that question, and it was quite difficult. It took years to figure it out. First of all, it was a very low-yield uh, atomic detonation, 200 to 300 tons. And it's nothing to compare to the radiation that's released by these 1,000 kilotons and megaton bombs. Now, 
in order to firmly establish a basis for this, I finally learned uh, that after World War II, uh, Everett Teller and uh, Ernest Lawrence, when they established the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in California, the first thing that they did was to test two bombs, uranium hydride bombs that were exactly and identical to the bomb that was tested at Port Chicago. And the Department of Defense and the uh, Department of Energy at that time, the Atomic Energy Commission, did complete radiological surveys uh, on the ground, uh, in the air, for hundreds of miles away, and all that um, all that information uh, is reported in Chapter 16, and it, it's just unmistakable. The inevitable conclusion is that there was no radiation hazard uh, to anybody as a result of the Port Chicago explosion. Nobody on the ground, nobody was close enough to be... Uh, to be exposed to initial radiation, and the fallout was just so minimal and so far away and so scattered that there was no hazard whatsoever. And uh, residual radiation for other tests indicated that uh, the the background radiation level was back down to normal within a very, very short time after the tests. Um, yeah, but I don't think there was ever any measurement made whatsoever of uh, any radiation in Port Chicago. Well, that, just as the critics have mentioned, well, gee, there would be radiation, et cetera, et cetera, because we're, we're all out of time here. But that is a point that, that's, been, uh, that's been raised in the past. Right. Well, I, I refer people to Chapter 16 in the book, and it's, it's really quite adequately uh, answered there. All righty. And once again, that book, The Last Wave from Port Chicago, is available at www.portchicago.org. Port Chicago is one word, P-O-R-T-C-H-I. C-A-G-O. We have been visiting with Peter Vogel, the author of Last Wave from Port Chicago. There will be, uh, there, uh, sister station WFMU is archiving the For the Record programs on real audio. More recent programs streaming at WFMU.org. Older programs available for download only at a longer URL linked to both that address and to the For the Record section of the Spitfire website. The For the Record section of the Spitfire website at www.spitfirelist.com contains written descriptions of the broadcast, plus a place you can click on to support the work that I'm doing. Uh, Peter, I want to thank you once again for appearing on our airwaves. I want to thank you for all the work you've done uh, on so many subjects over so many years and well, done so well. Well, it's, it's uh, a duty and a pleasure. We've been speaking with Peter Vogel, author of The Last Wave of Port Chicago. This concludes Side 2 of For the Record Program number 444, being recorded on February 1st of 2004. For Peter Vogel, my name is Dave Emery. Thanks for listening.